0: I would title this fixated on glory, sustained by glory, and transformed into glory. Those things are related. Fixated on glory, sustained by glory, and transformed into glory. And I'll just read uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and then a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's really all in the same context here. The closing verse of Chapter 3, but we all with open face, I think you know that means unveiled face, maybe your translation says that, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And then the concluding verses of the next chapter, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 16, for which cause we faint not but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are eternal, but the things which are not our uh, temporal, I'm sorry, the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I've thought about this passage even more. In the recent days, we were challenged uh, probably three weeks ago as a pastoral staff, we were challenged by a man that was speaking to us for a few days uh, to draft what he called a life objective, uh, just a succinct statement of our purpose for living. My first reaction was to be embarrassed that I'm almost 66 years of age, and I've never gotten around to doing that, you know, better late than never, I guess, to figure out my purpose for being here. But then um, I, I began to welcome the opportunity, and I realized that in the last two or three years, God has shaped my values and my objectives in ways that if I had drafted a life objective several years ago, I'd have to revise it. And so here's my life objective. I I won't dwell on this. this. This will be a springboard for something else. First of all, to passionately know God and to continually be changed into Christ's image by beholding his glory. And then secondly, to pray fervently with other believers, which is what I'm doing today, to pray fervently with other believers for the greater works through the Holy Spirit that result in the conversion of souls and the reviving of Christ's church. And the final statement is a so that statement, okay, so that um, eternal bliss in heaven with my Savior will not be a giant leap, but one small step. And so that's my life objective. I'll focus on the second part of that in a moment. But last Saturday, as I was not able to be with you because of that funeral, probably the sixth funeral in, in as many months that we've had, most of them godly pillars in our church. But as I was uh, officiating at the funeral of another godly man, um, my mind went back to the last visit I had with him just six days before he passed. And as I went, the Lord just clearly impressed me to dwell exclusively on the glory of Jesus Christ that he was about to experience and behold for the first time. And so I did. I took him to 1 John 3, uh, the first few verses there, how it doth not yet appear what we shall be. It doth not yet appear. And I said, Brother Gene, but you're about, you're about to see Jesus as he is. And he got excited about it, and and I did too. And um, then I asked his wife and his uh, daughter who were in the home, and my wife was with me, I said, could we just sing together that great revival song. I think it was popularized in the meetings of Dr. R.A. Torrey by Charles Alexander. Oh, that will be glory for me. And I kid you not, this man, 85, almost 86, he died two days short of his 86th birthday, dying with pancreatic and liver cancer, weak as he could be he sitting in the recliner, but he just summoned all the strength he could to gr- clenched his fist, raised his hands and sang, oh, that will be glory for me. Only he slowed down the temple. He wanted to squeeze all the juice he could out of every word. And we were singing it too fast for him. And I'll never forget the look of heaven that came across his face. I was not there when he passed away six days later, but a faithful man in our church was. And he told me, not knowing what I had just told you, He said uh, the last thing that Gene did, the last gesture he made, and the last words were to point up to heaven and to say glory, glory. And then he crossed peacefully over into glory, and it wasn't a giant leap. It was a small step, no struggle, no pain, evidently, no cursing. I heard about a 32-year-old man that I believe is a believer, but he was – just two weeks ago, he was uh, had a major stroke, and uh, when he finally came out of it, um, he started cursing, though he never did that. His wife said he never did that. But there was no cursing here. There was not any complaining. There was no regret, not even a death rattle. And the only explanation I can give for that is that this man already had an eye singled to the glory of God. He was ready. And he was anticipating the experience of that glory when he would see his savior face to face. And so thank you for praying for me as I conducted that memorial service. That's an easy thing for a man like that, who's already got the glory of God on his face before he ever passes away. But he was a a real soul winner and the whole family of people of neighbors of his originally from Kenya, only one daughter speaks English All of them are Swahili speaking, but three generations were there at this funeral, and this man could speak no Swahili, but they understood his love. They understood his concern for them and uh, how he spoke to them, gave them a Swahili Bible, and so they came to the service, and through the one daughter that could speak English, they let me know that they would be willing to come again. We want. They wanted me to tell them when we would have church again. We've got a missionary to Kenya who's going to visit us on a furlough uh, coming up, and he's going to go with me to speak to them. So thank you for praying. God is already answering your prayers. But on that second point of my life objective there that I gave to you about praying fervently with other believers, that for the greater works of the Holy Spirit that are manifest in revival of the church and conversion sinners. I'd just like to follow up with that for a couple of minutes and talk about the glory of Christ upon his throne right now. It's a staggering thought, but it's clearly brought out in scripture. Christ ascended with a glory that he did not have before. It's amazing when we think about that. This was so anticipated in the Old Testament with the Psalms of ascents, especially Psalm twenty-four, the closing verses, which are majestic. There's an antiphonal response there. I think of the angels at, uh, uh, leaning over the ramparts of heaven as Christ ascends uh, into into heaven. They they say, "Lift up your heads, O ye gates; even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in." And then the question, who is this King of glory? And the answer, the Lord of hosts, the Lord strong and mighty and so forth. The King of glory is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And his work at the right hand of the Father is so glorious. And as I brought out last time, and I don't have time to repeat it, there are several verses in the New Testament that just speak of the fact that his work right now at the right hand of the Father is even more important and more glorious than his work, On the cross. And that's a staggering thought. I would not say that if the Bible did not say it. But the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. He does that to carry out the terms of the new covenant. A great hymn writer, great songwriter, wrote a hymn that says, He signed the deed with his atoning blood and ever lives right now to make the promise good. He's living to carry out the terms of that new covenant. And uh, the implications of this are staggering. Even the implications for heaven itself. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but heaven itself was not what it is since the entrance of Christ into the heavenly sanctuary. In Colossians 1 verse 20, it speaks of God reconciling all things unto himself, whether they be things in earth. We can understand that. Boy, there's a whole lot of things that need to be reconciled in earth. But then he goes on to say, or things which are in heaven, (laughs) things which are in heaven. The writer to the Hebrews said that the things in heaven stood need of a purifying by the sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 9, verse 23. What a difference was made when Christ was enthroned at his ascension. He is forevermore the glorified son of man. He is the lamb upon his throne. I am preaching on Sunday mornings on the prodigal son for a few weeks. And I was intrigued by that statement, which is really the refrain. It's kind of the theme that there's joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents. And one verse says that there's joy in the presence of the angels. Jesus said that. And I thought, how do the angels know? How do the angels know when one sinner repents? We don't believe in mediums. communicating like that. We don't believe that there's some snitch that lets them know. I think I know the answer to that question. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's praying. The angels are about the throne. They are around the throne of the Lamb. And Jesus is praying not only for those who have already been brought into the fold, for those who are already in heaven, but he's praying for those who will believe on his disciples through our word. And when that prayer gets answered, Jesus, I'm sure praises his father and the angels know it and they praise too, and they worship the lamb. It's wonderful to think about that. The second thing I'd like to leave with you is this, the spirit of the glorified Christ is more than the Holy spirit was in the old Testament. And I'm not Pentecostal, I'm not charismatic, but uh, I do believe probably the best combination is uh, I happen to be Baptist, so I have a a Baptist head and a Pentecostal heart, and I'm getting more and more Jehovah Witness feet, and that's a good combination when you put those three together. But in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, we read about what happened on the day of the Feast of Pentecost, in that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, literally, into me, as the Scripture hath said, Out of his belly his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, The word given is in the King James Version is in italics. It's not really there in the original. The Holy Ghost was not yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's an amazing statement. The Holy Spirit was around in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was active. We see him in the very opening verses of Genesis brooding on the face of the waters. But the reality of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus ascended and the spirit that was sent down Uh, to the church on the day of Pentecost is so much more than the spirit of God in the old Testament. The comparison is as if the Holy spirit was not yet. And that just staggers my thinking and challenges me. My time is up, but just think of the implications of the fixation on the glory of the exalted Christ. Think of the implications for revival. And we're praying for revival, the outpouring of the Holy spirit as the the specimen took place on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost. He hath shed forth this, Peter said. He hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. It wasn't just a quiet, obtrusive, gradual, subjective work of the Spirit of God. It was something that was seen and heard. Think of the implications for answered prayer. The one on the throne is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask to think, according to what? According to the power that worketh in us. The Spirit in us is the same as the 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 one at at the right hand of the father, the spirit of the exalted Christ. And then think of the implications for peace and grace in the hour of death. The abundant entrance that Peter spoke of can be ours too. So I just challenge us with that. I'll close with this statement. If our future blessedness will consist of being where he is and beholding his glory, which is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 24. What better preparation can there be for it than a constant contemplation and anticipation of that glory, even now. And that glory we see through a glass darkly, the Bible says, we see it in the gospel, but we need to be continually transformed into that glory. And then we'll be ready to take that one small step into glory where we'll see the glory of the exalted Christ. So that's exciting my soul. I hope it ignites something in yours too. Thank you.